HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by New York Mutual Trading. This week on Meet and 3, we get ready for Super Tuesday by looking at how food shapes elections both at home and abroad. People know that you don't order a Philly cheesesteak with Swiss cheese as John Kerry did back in the 2004 cycle. A young group of friends decided that they would put up a website which told voters which polling booths had sausages. Prime Minister David Cameron was pictured about a week after this incident eating a hot dog in a bun with a knife and fork because he was so afraid. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you listen to podcasts. This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Bob Valgenti from Gastronomica, the journal for food studies, in for Coral Lee. This episode is the first of a mini-series co-produced with Gastronomica. What motivates the passionate defense of a recipe? Today, historian Lori Bertram shares with us the curious case of Icelandic Vinarterta, a cake whose origins and most adamant defenders are, surprisingly, not found in Iceland. Dr. Bertram is an assistant professor in the Department of History at the University of Toronto, where she teaches material culture, gender and sexuality, and migration. Her book, The Viking Immigrants, Icelandic North Americans, will be published by University of Toronto Press in May of this year. Laurie, welcome to Meant to be Eaten. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It's our pleasure. It's great to have you here. So why don't we begin... For those in the audience who have not read your recent essay in Gastronomica, perhaps you could explain what Vinarterta is and tell us a little bit about its origins. Sure thing. Well, if anyone uh, amongst your readers has ever met an Icelandic North American or had you know, a chance to visit their home, say at Christmas time or during a special occasion, there's a pretty good chance that they've also met this curious cake. So Vinarterta is actually a striped, fruit tort that was really popular in Iceland in the 1860s and 70s. Its origins lay in Vienna, actually. It was imported to Iceland via uh, Copenhagen. So at, in, the, in the late 18th century, a lot of Danish uh, uh, trendsetters were really embracing Viennese confections. And so as this became very popular in Denmark, 
uh, Iceland, because they were ruled at the time by Denmark, were often copying the standards of style set forth by the Danish elite. So Icelanders uh, in the 19th century started to really experiment with global food trends through this kind of Danish connection. And in the 1870s, when mass migration to North America began, Icelanders left Iceland at a time when foods like Vinatarta were considered to be like the most, um, some of the most beautiful uh, and important and I think, you know, really kind of like status-filled foods for Icelandic women in particular. So, of course, Icelandic North Americans, you know, like a lot of immigrant groups during this time, established roots, you know, drew in more migrants until mass migration was closed in, in 1914. And by the time mass migration to North America ended, Iceland had actually lost about one quarter of its population to migration. So the Icelanders that remained in North America, we call, who are called Vesteríslandingar in Icelandic or Western Icelanders, created their own kind of distinctive new world, um, you know, experimenting with North American culture, political ideas, fashion, literature, everything, but kind of rooted in this 19th century Icelandic society. So a lot of the Icelandic components of the culture that came are like the Icelandic culture of the 1870s. So, of course, modern Iceland moves on. You know, it's it's got this whole other trajectory after the 1870s and 80s. Um, they become part of NATO. They uh, have this kind of American military presence that sort of, you know, uh, really has a big cultural impact on Icelandic culture. People start eating hot dogs and hamburgers instead of, you know, Liverpilsa and Lupilsa, like old traditional Icelandic foods. And so um, Vinatarta dies out in Iceland. Um, by the 1950s and 60s, you know, it's just one of these old kind of Victorian desserts that takes a lot of time to make. It's made with prunes most of the time, so it doesn't really mesh with, you know, how people are thinking about elegance in their dessert making in mid-century uh, Iceland. And so, yeah, it declines and virtually dies out in Iceland. While in North America, we have this whole other trajectory happening okay. uh, where people are continuing to not only make it, but increasingly become more and more obsessed with it, you know, uh, obsessed with maintaining this original recipe and protecting it from all other kinds of uh, alterations. And this is coming from another kind of society where, you know, almost everything that was Icelandic about Icelandic immigrants, they had to hide in public, especially, you know, in the first, uh, first generation uh, experience. You know, they had to change their names to English-sounding names. They would avoid speaking Icelandic in public. Um, they became as outwardly English as possible. But then on the inside, you know, inside these Icelandic immigrant homes, we have all these other material traditions that, you know, in some cases survived, and in the case of Vinatarta, becomes this kind of marker of, you know, the last thing that you should never, ever change. So, And so this is how Vinatarta becomes a, kind of a symbol in the community. So maybe at this at this moment, um, you know, we have these two lives of Vinartarta that we can think of, perhaps the one that was there in the 19th century in Iceland, and then the life that it takes on when it's carried to North America um, uh, by, the, by, the, by the many immigrants uh, who came from Iceland, as you were saying, almost a, a quarter of the population, which is a really amazing number. So if we step back into the 19th century, could you say a little bit about um, the life of the cake there, was it a special occasion cake? Was it a holiday cake? Uh, when would this 
um, be brought out and would, would all the time, as you said, that went into making it, when would that, uh, that time be spent? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the, the one thing that's really important to remember about Vina Tarta is how expensive it would have been in the 1800s in Iceland. You know, Iceland, of course, is on the edge of the Arctic Circle. It's really hard to import things. And uh, even flour, for example, was um, an expensive import right up until the 1850s and 60s, and even afterwards. And so, um, yeah, Vina Tarta, because it's, it's not only associated with that Danish elite, but it relies on imported ingredients like wheat flour, uh, imported dried fruit, Cardamom is one of the um, really important uh, ingredients, and also ground almonds. These are all really, really expensive ingredients. And Iceland at this time, you know, they're dealing with a lot of, you know, not very nice conditions. There's a uh, problem with pack ice in northern Iceland that eventually helps push the migration. People can't get enough to eat, whether they're wealthy or poor. And so Vinatarta is this this kind of... Um, uh, symbol of kind of this connection to the outside world. And it's, it's really like a glamorous symbol. And so women that are able to bring out Vina Tarta with coffee, you know, it's a real status symbol. It's really saying something about the family and also their connections, like their cosmopolitanism. It's uh, it's one of these foods that is, it's a status symbol. So when when immigrants take the recipe with them to North America, is it more accessible in North America as a dessert that they can produce precisely because those ingredients might be uh, more available or more within the price range of a larger group of those immigrants than perhaps it was in Iceland, either because of the, uh, the hardships they were going through in the late 19th century or because um, they were not of perhaps the, the, the more elite class that could afford those things? Absolutely. You know, wheat is much more affordable in the New World at this time. There are some more expensive ingredients that remain out of reach for Icelandic makers, and one of those is almonds. You know, the original Vina Tarta recipe, it's actually kind of a, the cake part is made out of ground almond originally. And so women in Canada and North America, it's clear they can't quite afford you know, two pounds of almonds <laughs> to throw into um, a Christmas cake. So they start experimenting with almond extract. And we actually see that today, that there's a lot of women that, you know, don't have enough cash, so they'll just buy a bottle of almond extract that, you know, might last for years uh, to produce vina tarta instead. So when, when those groups bring it over, you had mentioned that, uh, like many immigrant groups that come to North America or come to other places, uh, they are almost on a fast track towards assimilation. They lose many of the traditions uh, that they had in their origin country. Why is it you think that Wiener Terta uh, lasts? Um, I think somewhere in your essay you say that uh, Wiener Terta is a kind of culinary time capsule. And like many immigrant groups, um, their traditions almost get locked in that moment when they first came over and they survive in the new place, even though they die out in the old place. So why is it you think that the cake, among all the other things that could have survived, is the one that seems to persist? Absolutely. That's a great question. And I've, I've really thought about that, too, because some of the traditions that survived, they survived because they were useful. You know, um, for example, one of them is a, it's called a sang. It's just like a wool duvet that you can find in a lot of Icelanders still find it actually in some people's homes. 
um, and, you know, things that were cheaper to produce and more familiar. But Vina Tartes, again, it's kind of affiliated with status. And so um, it's interesting, you know, one of the things that I found about references to Vina Tarta over and over and over again in the community was that it always appeared at Christmas time, uh, at funerals, and at weddings. And so this was often when, um, for example, the different generations would come together. And so people often associated, you know, being able to hear stories about Iceland or immigrating to Canada, you know, with these intergenerational gatherings, and Vina Tarta always seemed to be there too. And so there was a lot of people that said, you know, it's this kind of like relationship between the past and the present at these gatherings that Vina Tarta kind of took on these qualities. For a lot of other women, though, it's it's kind of, um, or a lot of people, the Vina Tarta maker is actually, you know, key to that genealogical function of the tort. So usually families have a designated Vina Tarta maker. And, uh, you know, they're the person that make it. And, you know, God forbid someone else brings in <laughs> their Vina Tarta. And, like, you know, then there's going to be comparisons. And it's, it's kind of a vicious culture, actually. <laughs> like, I would not... <laughs> want to go up against some of like the queen vina tarta makers in the community um but uh yeah like for these people vina tarta becomes associated with like a kind of a almost like a matriarch in the family and so when she passes on you know someone else takes on the role of making this tort for everyone but the tort itself is kind of an embodiment of these makers of these many women who have made the tort over time. So it, it represents them and kind of like the, the family structure in a way. We're going to take a short break. Uh, you're listening to Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after this short break. This episode is brought to you by New York Mutual Trading, the premier Japanese food, alcoholic beverage, and restaurant supply specialist. Mutual Trading is the Japanese food authority, true to the heart in upholding genuine Japanese food traditions, and progressive in exploring new ways to provide innovative restaurant supplies and services. They import, export, distribute, and manufacture the top brands for retailer and food service customers nationwide. Learn more at nymtc.com. And we're back. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Bob Valgenti from Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, in for Coral Lee. Lori Bertram and I were just discussing uh, the persistence and the survival of the Vinarterta in North America after it was brought by Icelandic immigrants. Um, if we can go back a little bit in history, because uh, I think I want to maybe in a little bit talk about uh, the particular role of the Vinaterta maker uh, within families. But before we get to that point, I just want to step back a little bit into the time period you talk about in your essay in the 1930s and the 1940s um, and the kind of cultural moment that the cake has. It's, uh, it's brought, you might say, outside of the insular Icelandic uh, culture into the mainstream a little bit. So can you talk about that transition and then how it ties into this really um, incredible story you tell about um, the geopolitics of the 1940s and 50s and how Iceland finds itself in the middle of that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting, you know, in the 1930s, you know, a lot of historians consider this to be a really sort of like xenophobic time for immigrant communities. It's not really a friendly time, uh, not really a super pluralist time. But, but Diana Selig and some other scholars have begun to push back against this idea that pluralism is a post-war phenomenon. And so I really found this when I was looking at, you know, when does, essentially when does coffee cake become an ethnic symbol? So um, I started to look at, you know, why Vina Tarta? Why does Vina Tarta become the representation of the Icelandic community? Because in Icelandic, Vina Tarta means uh, <laughs> Vienna tort. <laughs> it's actually not even Icelandic. <laughs> so this is, you know, for Icelanders that come to North America, they're like, why is this your symbol? <laughs> I'm so confused. <laughs> and rightfully so, but the whole story kind of like, it's it's kind of actually the story of the community, so it's, it is actually very suitable. So in the 1930s, we do see this kind of like proto-pluralism where, um, uh, you know, food producers and even state agents, they're all kind of like interested in these ethnic communities and like, what's going on? And, you know, maybe ethnic difference can actually be a source of strength for the nation. And so they start to kind of catalog, you know, what are the ethnic traditions of these various immigrant groups? And a lot of this is a response actually to also industrialism. It's kind of like, you know, thinking about how, you know, we're in this kind of nightmarish industrial world, you know, post-World War One and, you know, what are the kind of beautiful, rich, older traditions that these immigrants have? How can these also kind of like save us in a way? Was there, so there's this whole anti-industrialist bent to this this ethnic uh, kind of like interest in the 30s. Uh, sorry, what were you going to say? I was, I was going to ask, is there, you know, just to push back on that idea a little bit, is there a chance that that this this notion from Selig of a, of a kind of proto pluralism is that it's still framed within a European context? So we're talking about cultural pluralism, but um, you know, you tell the interesting story of how within the North American imaginary, Iceland was more associated with um, uh, you know with the idea of of Eskimos rather than with Scandinavian culture, and so once that correction is placed in there that that we're seeing a pluralism but it's rather still this european idea uh that it fits within the 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 context of of the immigrant groups that perhaps are found uh more favorable within uh the within the mainstream or oh absolutely you know, yeah yeah or that it ha that it takes on especially in the 20s and the 30s the kind of flavor of exoticism that it's here's something mm -hmm. unique here's something you different but it's not a real sort of uh, bringing into a pluralistic context of, of the most, uh, you might say, different among us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you could see a real mixture of those, of both, both kind of threads. Um, and Icelanders, you know, we do see things like about kind of a similar kind of use of recipes, for example, from like First Nations communities, mm -hmm. um, from, you know, like even the idea of like Eskimo pies and stuff like there's, there's an interest in you know, kind of like either the ethnic or the racialized other and their food kind of like, you know, experimenting with it. And so because Icelanders, 
you know, I talk about this more in my article and in my book, they are still racially very ambiguous people in the eyes of North Americans well into the 1950s. Um, and even actually onwards, you still see, you know, reminders to people in Icelandic tourist magazines. You know, often they'll say, like, remember, you know, that Icelanders are the descendants of the Vikings. There's this this constant kind of need to push back against people's ideas about the Arctic um, and what Arctic populations or what far northern populations are supposed to look like. But, uh, yeah, so we have this this thing happening in the 1930s where um, there's a range of kind of, like, sampling and interest in, like, you know, what's what's kind of out there. And Kimi Bejan talks about this in her book um, about kind of the... Um, um, the kind of 1930s uh, Food Writers Project. And uh, so Icelanders, you know, Lena Tart is actually already appearing in newspapers and, you know, in newspaper columns in a light way, just alongside other recipes, as, you know, something that Icelanders tend to make. But it becomes like an Icelandic cake in, like, capital letters uh, in the 1940s when Iceland becomes kind of... Um, part of an international new focus on Cold War stability um, as, you know, they're, they're wrapping up kind of the uh, end of the Second World War and looking at how they're going, NATO's trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to secure the Arctic, which is kind of like a, sh- a bombing shortcut to North mm-hmm. America for the Soviet Union. Um, how are we going to secure that area? And Icelanders are, you know, recently have achieved full independence from Denmark they're very strong. Um, there's a very strong independence movement and mindset in the country, and so an American military presence there is phenomenally unpopular. So uh, Iceland, the um, NATO actually, in the United States in particular, they start building this kind of new cultural pluralism campaign that's designed to teach or, or um, get Icelanders to think about Americans as guests and you know how important. Um, you know, hospitality is to Icelandic culture, and you know, shouldn't we actually be welcoming these American guests into our homes? And Daisy Nyman actually is the one that first started looking into this and uh, has done some brilliant work on it. So I was kind of looking at how Vina Tarda actually becomes like this military <laughs> part of this military strategy. And um, it's funny because in Icelandic, actually, you can mistranslate Vina Tarda instead of Vienna Tort into friend tort (laughs) it can be like a tort for friends to share so it's like it's supposed to also be this consummate symbol of you know how compatible north americans and icelanders are because north american icelanders eat this cake make this cake and thrive in north america you know find that this is a fabulous partnership that has only benefited them yeah that that moment suddenly we see these yeah these strange kind of articles Celebrating Vina Tarta as this like symbol of Icelandic hospitality. Yeah, that that moment in your essay reminded me of a point that's raised in uh, the book Philosophers at Table by uh, Lisa Heltke and, and Ray Boisvert, where they talk about the roots of the word hospitality, uh, the Latin word hospes, meaning both guest and host. And this always seems mm-hmm. to be the interesting position that immigrants are placed in when they come to uh, a new place. On the one hand, they're guests in a new place. Uh, and yet, as you point out, Iceland has this rich tradition of hospitality, and that cake seems to be at the center of it. So maybe to kind of push this in a, in a slightly different trajectory, can you talk uh, a little bit now about 
the role that the cake plays, you know, from the 50s onward up to today in households, and in particular how that, sh you know, I sensed in your essay a shift if, you know, perhaps class was one of the defining features of the uh, of this sort of phenomenon of the cake in 19th century Iceland. It seems that the focus shifts away from that uh, in late 20th century North American expressions of the cake and that the focus is on hospitality, but perhaps also to some extent, as you say at the end of your essay, on gender. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's clear from what I've seen uh, in the archives and in many of these references that for 19th century Icelandic women, Vina Tarta was a status symbol. It was a symbol of success, of affluence, of cosmopolitan engagement in you know, a faraway place, in a place that was very isolated and often very, very poor. And so when we see a lot of the people who emigrated to North America you know, between the 1870s and 1914, working-class women are vastly overrepresented in the, uh, in the census record. So these women are are, you know, a really big part of the immigrant group. And so, you know, maybe in Iceland, these women could only afford, you know, to own one dress or maybe two dresses and, you know, couldn't really afford to make something like Vina Tarta. But when they came to North America, it's like they they started to engage in North American um, material culture in a way that represented... Icelandic ideas about what constituted um, success. Uh, and so Vina Tarta, it's no surprise that these working class women, when they come to North America and they can make it, that it becomes this really important thing. And so it's it's almost like a, a redemption in a way, because a lot of the Icelanders also who left in the 19th century were accused by nationalists of being traitors to the nation. And so for these people, you know, and this is a, you can find this kind of at the heart of Icelandic North American identity. There's constantly this sort of like speaking back to these nationalists. Um, we're also part of the elite that kept everyone sort of uh, marginalized in a social and economic sense. It's kind of like a, um, an, uh, it's kind of like a, not a, a culture of resistance, mm -hmm. but... Um, a culture of defiance in a lot. Like, there's a lot of interesting threads that deal with the issue of defiance in you know, Icelandic North American culture. So, yeah, we see this as kind of like being this strong, um, you know, symbol for a lot of people. Also, people were just used to it, and they really liked it. I do have to say that it is very good. <laughs> um, I'm going to say something controversial, and that's that, you know, a lot of, like, far northern food, it's, kind of an acquired taste. You know, I come from an Icelandic and Scottish family, and I like all of it. You know, it's homey food for me. Um, but objectively, you know, it's it's poverty food too, right? Like, it's it's not like the greatest thing you're ever going to have in your life. But Vina Tarta is very good. Um, and so some people just liked it too. And so we'd see these big rushes at Christmas time, you know, in all of the Icelandic bakeries and Icelandic centers like Winnipeg and Manitoba, Canada where it's like, get your Vita Tarta order, orders in early because there's going to be a lineup at the bakery. You know, make sure you can get it from a good baker. Like, don't just settle for, you know, subpar Vita Tarta. So for the immigrant generation, it had these connotations. And so then in the 70s... Oh, sorry, do, on, do you want to ask a question? Oh, no, continue. I was going to say, and then later on, we have these second, third, fourth, and fifth 
generation people that maintain the Vina Tarta tradition. And for these people, um, it has the, the tort has kind of become an embodiment of the immigrant generation and their experiences and their culture too. Um, it's a tangible kind of genealogical link uh, to the people that first came. When a lot of other of the cultural links that we traditionally associate with immigrant communities are gone. So, for example, Icelanders, you could say like Icelandic North Americans really shouldn't be an ethnic group because we're missing so many of the, mm-hmm. <laughs> so many of the, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of symbols that you're supposed to have as an ethnic group. Like religiously, we're hilariously fragmented. Political, like politically, so divided and you know constantly just like infinitely divided. Um, linguistically, Icelandic hang, hung on as a language for a long time, but um, it's hard to find people who speak it anymore. So all of these things are missing. And it's like Vinatarta steps in, in a way that is really, really powerful. And again, it comes back to that idea that, you know, here's a community that had to change, you know, had to take on that English facade. Um, and so what is left? You know, what is left? What are you going to... When are you going, where's the line that you're going to draw when it comes to changing things? You know, are going to change everything? Are you going to let go of everything? So for a lot of people, the line is Vina Tarta. <laughs> like, we're not giving up Vina Tarta. Yeah, and it's and seemed, I think for a lot of people, this is confusing, but it's it's got a lot of power, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that it it's an embodiment of the people. You know, it's a physical link um, to your ancestors and, you know, the things that they loved and cherished and how they were kind of brought together. So, so would you go as far as to say that it's in, in some sense a replacement or a proxy for some of those missing things uh, precisely because those cultural elements uh, have not survived over the generations? I think so. Um, but I think in a way it's, it's almost, you know, it's hard to say. Like it's, I guess this comes back to, you know, a lot of the questions that um, your series asks too, and that's like when does food you know, how is food also, like, a really distinctive medium? Like, food is not, you know, food cannot necessarily replace the Icelandic language, but it operates, it has a distinctive property, too, you know? So, I don't know. Like, for me, there's so many different parts of the whole Vina Tartar tradition that are so distinctive, you know, from something like going to a church or belonging to a political party or something like that. And a lot of it has to do with, you know just like the giant network of people and things that it takes to produce something, you know, from the women that make it to where they get their materials to how they disseminate it, whether it's at a bake sale or at a bakery or, you know, in their family, who eats it, how the recipes are maintained. Like, it's just this whole other universe of stuff. So So does it stand in or does it um, supplement? I can't can't say exactly. Yeah, maybe to, to continue along those lines, uh, because one of your focus, uh, one of the focuses of your research is material culture. And food is always an interesting item when we talk about material culture, because it's ephemeral. Uh, we appreciate it yeah. by destroying it um, and, and turning it into energy <laughs> in our bodies. So, so what would you consider here the material element of culture? Is it, is it the actual cake that's produced? Is it the recipe? Is it um, the experience uh, of those, uh, those individuals coming together, together to make it? Uh, where do you think its materiality lies? Or what, what is your focus as the historian of this, of this cake? 
Yeah, well, you know, um, I always go back to Bruno Latour's famous quote uh, that things do not exist without being full of people. And Vinatarta, and I, I hope this came across in the article from, like, you know, looking at its social origins, its cultural impact, and even its, like, military connotations. Like, it is almost like a whole universe. There's just so much loaded into... When you start to take apart kind of the history of this one cake, it's just got this massive, massive history. It's so strange. And so um, the materiality is everything. You know, I can see, you know, how women who cooked or baked in sod houses in Iceland, why they would choose this tort, because you can actually bake the layers. Um, they use kind of like a Dutch oven in mm-hmm. traditional Icelandic turf houses. And so when you actually make the tort, you're like, you could totally make this in a Dutch oven. This totally works. It's fine. And then you can see, you know, um, when you go to the shop to get almonds to make the filling, you're like, these almonds are very expensive. <laughs> How did people afford to make this? Um, there's so many things that you all of a sudden can contact almost the people through the recipe. You can kind of experience some of the things or it makes you ask questions about the giant network of makers that suddenly you're in contact with because you're really getting into this recipe. And so for me, the material world of Vina Tarta is huge. It's ovens, it's pans, it's wheat, it's prunes, it's spice, it's icing. It's not icing because <laughs> there's a very strong divide in the community against, you know, between if do you put icing on your Vina Tarta or do you not? And that is like a very serious, <laughs> very serious question in our community. And, um, yeah, and it just kind of makes me think about, you know, um, the universes of food, you know, just like, wow, like there's so much in here that we can see. And it's, it's, I think one of the most beautiful things about it is that it puts you in touch with the people that, you know, the only written record they may have left behind was a recipe card. Hmm. Um, and yet that recipe card can tell you so much about them. About what it connects to. So maybe on that, as a, as a final thought, thinking about these kinds of extended networks, uh, could you maybe, uh, end today, uh, I want to take an idea from your essay uh, where you cite David Sutton and the idea of food creating prospective memories. And so the way that mm-hmm. uh, food and the kind of enactment of the both the creation and the participation in this dessert um, creates those prospective memories. Can you can you say a little bit about uh, what you meant by that idea of prospective memories and perhaps how that connects to your broader research on Icelandic culture uh, that's coming out in your book? Yeah, absolutely. Well, in my book, I look at kind of, um, you know, the everyday parts of immigrant culture that I think often get missed in ethnic historiography. Not always, but, you know, often. And it's kind of like the immigranty things, like the things that are not quite from the homeland and not totally from the new land. And Vina Tarta is one of these weird things. It's like not wholly Icelandic, it's not wholly North American. It's awkward. It's, it seems inauthentic. People often, you know, when they see it from the outside, they don't really understand what's going on. But from the inside, you know, because I grew up with this crazy tort in my family. <laughs> um, and as I age, too, and as I like, become a parent and, you know, lose generation, you know, in front of me and all of this stuff, like, I can see how this food... Um, has become kind of an intergenerational binding agent. And, you know, it's something, of course, you associate it with your childhood. You know, you eat it at Christmas time or the wedding or whatever. And you don't quite get 
what it means. I mean, you hear the stories, you like it, you don't like it. Um, and then maybe you get older and you start experimenting with it as a maker. And then you just kind of like, I don't know, it's, it's kind of something you have to live through to understand. But it almost becomes kind of like the, um, um, the scaffolding uh, of community memory. So, you know, as people come and go, as, we, as people pass away, you know, there's that old saying, you know, when a man, an old man dies, a library burns down. <laughs> I think for communities like the Icelandic community, that is a very scary thought because, you know, we're always kind of, we always kind of think we're on the verge of like losing our culture, losing our identity. And so Vinatarja is kind of our, our scaffolding in a way, you know, when the actual people die, these things remain and they're, they're things that you can be physically in contact with that can be part of your living life, you know, part, they can be there at your wedding, you know, they can be there at your baby shower, they can be there um, and, and represent these past generations. And so it's like, you know, we create these kinds of things to uh, protect that sense of identity um, in a way that reflects kind of the precarity of Icelandic North American identity. And, uh, yeah, so I still, I mean, like, you can talk to many, many young people who have, like, an Icelandic, you know, grandparent or, like, some kind of Icelandic connection. Um, and Vina Tarta is kind of, like, one of the first things, one of the t- first touchstones that you can kind of, you know, easily access and say, you know, this is, you know, part of my culture. This is a representation. I can touch this. I can eat this. I can experience it. It's accessible. And so, yeah, it becomes this kind of important thing for kind of, you know, leading us through life as things kind of like uh, dissolve around us, just reminding us that, you know, that history is, is not gone. And that, and that reaches beyond the community as well as, as food, as something that can be shared as something, and in this case, a sweet dessert, it's something that can also be, um, can stretch out to other communities. And so it, it becomes accessible and approachable to others. So maybe this Absolutely. is... Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, the, yeah. No, I was going to um, no, continue. I was going to say the, the queen, Vina Charta Baker, and my family is actually um, on my Scottish side, my aunt Linda. And she grew up in an Icelandic community, but she is like the, <laughs> the Vina Charta Baker at Christmas time. And uh, I know many, many great Vina Tarta makers, uh, Ruth Christie from Moon Straits in Manitoba, um, who's, uh, uh, you know, part of the, um, some of the many indigenous communities around Manitoba that have an Icelandic connection as well. Um, people make Vina Tarta uh, in, like, First Nations communities around or and, um, Native American communities around Icelandic centers. So the, when you see the food popping up, you also see that Icelanders have been in a place or that people have met Icelanders. And there's, it's almost like a, a way to map the larger history of connections in the community. And of course, for everyone like me who has not tried the cake, this gives us a task uh, for the future to seek it out and to, <laughs> and to learn firsthand what it's like. So why don't we uh, end our conversation there? I want to thank you, Laurie, for being our guest today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Okay, great talking to you. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. If you would like to learn more about this research or other work featured in Gastronomica, visit gastronomica.org, where you can access the spring 2020 issue for free until the end of this year. 
or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, is an international, interdisciplinary journal that presents new and original research, advances our understanding of compelling issues in the world of food, and invites critical debate and commentary across diverse audiences. Gastronomica is supported by the University of California Press, and on behalf of the journal's editorial collective, I want to thank Heritage Radio Network, Meant to be Eaten, and its host, Coral Lee, for allowing us to share this mini-series of podcasts. Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.